what a wonderful blessing it is for us to have so much fantastic music in our church this morning and the music ministry that sustains us. It is. It's wonderful. And as we are moving towards the end of our Easter season, we are also ending our Easter season series titled, You're Going to Need This. We've covered many teachings that Christ and the early church have left us and equipped us so that we can continue to do the work of Christ in the world. Kara's talked about courage. She's preached about individual transformation last week when she preached on having new eyes. And she preached on needing each other a couple weeks ago. But I want to look at something similar, but just a little bit different. With Pentecost looming, I want to talk about the thing that we will officially celebrate next week. The community that was built after Christ's death and resurrection, the church. You're going to need this community, church. And I think we all know that in our hearts, even if we aren't always willing to acknowledge it with our mouths. In the months following Jesus' resurrection, the new Jesus movement that were being called Christians existed mostly in and around Jerusalem. That's where Pentecost occurred. That's where the largest population of Jewish people existed. They were the first followers of Christ. And that is where all of the remaining disciples and emerging leaders were comfortable. They existed in an insular community, even though it was thriving and was having success, but you could argue it was relatively easy. They had family close by. They weren't traveling dangerous roads, being confronted by the same soldiers who had executed Christ. They probably had houses and places to sleep. But that's not what Christ had called them to do. They had not been called to make disciples out of Jerusalem or out of close by Bethany or even out of everything from Jerusalem to Galilee. They were called to make disciples, to form communities out of the whole world. A task so big that for the first few chapters of Acts, they just kind of pushed that part aside. They probably found a lot of great reasons to stay put. We want to establish a strong support system here in Jerusalem. Or we want to make sure that our plans are, are made to travel safely on the roads that we go on. We need a solid, well-thought-out marketing strategy before we get started. All good reasons, all things we've probably said to ourselves to stop us from doing the thing we're supposed to do. But still, not what they were called to do. Our first disciple to head out into the world that we're told about in the books of, book of Acts is Stephen. And it took a literal angel of the Lord speaking to Stephen to get him to get up and leave Jerusalem. And while on his way, he made the first convert of Christianity in the book of Acts that we see who is holy and totally different from the rest. As Stephen was on the road from Jerusalem to Gaza, he encountered an Ethiopian eunuch. Now, a eunuch held a unique position in the ancient world. Because they could have no families, some cultures valued them as intelligent and special. Others mistreated them and considered them not as worthy as everyone else in their society. Unfortunately, the Jewish custom didn't treat eunuchs equally. They were not allowed to fully participate in the life of the temple. They could not offer sacrifices on their own. They were considered unclean, not because of any actions, but because of who they were, how they were born. They were restricted to an outer part of the temple with literal walls separating them from the worship. And we've all seen something like this before, right? 
a place where we've seen someone kept at arm's length, not fully part of or accepted by a community. Maybe it's because someone isn't in the right economic bracket. Maybe it's because someone worshipped a different God than those around them. Or maybe it's because they worshipped the same God, but just not correctly. Not in the way they were, quote-unquote, supposed to. Maybe it's because an individual's political beliefs didn't match up with everyone else, and they, had, uh, they kept putting their foot in their mouth. And I bet if we went around this room, we could find 75 different reasons that we've seen someone excluded or that we've been excluded ourselves. It's safer to keep your community small, isn't it? It's easier to control. It's easier to get everyone on the same page. It's easier to make sure everybody stays inside the lines that we like them to stay in. It's easier to make sure that everyone is appropriate and well-behaved when your community is small. That's not what God had called the early church to. Stephen found himself in this moment. It must have been confusing and conflicting. He encountered this eunuch at the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And this person was already doing what a good Jewish person would be doing. They were reading scripture, coming back from Jerusalem from worship. You see, literacy was rare in these days. And to have a physical copy of any scripture was inordinately expensive. It was a true feat that Stephen would meet someone like this. But I imagine he had to be concerned and taken aback. This place, the middle of the desert, as this Bible calls it, this person, that's where the Spirit guided me? With someone who was a different race and a eunuch at that, who was perpetually and totally unclean under the law. But Stephen's desire to preach the gospel overtook any bias he may have against the wealthy foreigner. He took the scripture the Ethiopian man was reading and explained how Christ lived, taught, suffered, died, and was resurrected by God to bring new life into the world. But not only did Stephen teach them, that was already allowed under the Old Testament law. Stephen, Stephen took it a step further and offered him baptism. Stephen offered the eunuch full fellowship with God. Stephen offered him a place in his new community when the eunuch had been worshiping God from afar, kept out by walls and traditions and man-made barriers. With a simple bit of water in the desert, Stephen tore down those walls. Stephen, led by an angel in the spirit, took down barriers that had been up and in doing so, began to fulfill the bringing of the good news of Christ, not just to Jerusalem, not just to Galilee, not just to Samaria, but to the world. Now, our scripture today had not been written yet when Stephen baptized the Ethiopian eunuch into the body of Christ. But Stephen was living out the words of our scripture today. In Colossians 3, 12 through 17, we find the actions that Stephen did in this story put into words. Here it is. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds, to, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. And with gratitude in your hearts, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God. 
And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Colossians is calling us, challenging us to form a community with all the aspects that Stephen showed in his encounter with the eunuch. We're called to humble ourselves. Stephen teaches, touches, baptizes an unclean person. Something that would have never been approved by leading Jewish teachers or law keepers of the day. We're called to clothe ourselves in love, to protect ourselves. Stephen clothes himself in love because he's vulnerable. And in that vulnerability, he found the protection of Christ. The, by going against the values he was raised in and offering the eunuch a real connection, Stephen was protected by his generosity. By doing these things, by living out Colossians before it was written, Stephen introduced not just the eunuch, but the Ethiopian nation and people to Christ. And what an effect it has. Ethiopia is still one of the most Christian-identifying nations in all of Africa and has had their own solid, continual church since the 4th century, all because Stephen followed the Spirit into the desert. Stephen and the rest of the early church, they were still trying to figure out what exactly it meant for their faith to be in Jesus, to be resurrected, to be the Son of God. At this point, they were still teaching in synagogues. They were being overseen by Jewish leaders and keeping many of the same temple laws that they always had. But events like Stephen's experience with the eunuch, Peter's trip to Samaria, and the eventual conversion of Paul who persecuted Christians were pushing the church in a new direction. One where the physical barriers and religious barriers and the geographical barriers were not so strong, not so important. The Spirit was guiding this group, armed only with the story of the resurrected Christ and their experiences of community and the Holy Spirit. They were being guided by something completely new. And it went against the certainty of the law that they had grown up with, that they had practiced for generations and generations. In Judaism, there's a certainty. They had a priestly class that interpreted the law and spoke for God. They had a rigid structure where if you did this, you were in, and if you did that, you were out. And honestly, it probably worked for most people. Most people sat around with their families at dinner or after a hard day thankful for the work that the priests and the kings did because they were made comfortable by it. But when Christ came, he shined a light on the shortcomings of that certainty, the shortcomings of having a small group that speaks for God. What about the widow who had everything taken from her and only had a mite to give back to the people who didn't even protect her after the death of her husband? She was mistreated, she was stolen from, but under the law she had no choice except to give money to those who robbed her. What about the woman who was persistent with the judge until she finally was given justice? What about the man who had his inheritance stolen by his brother? What were they to do when the certain priest and powerful class ignored their needs and benefited those who already had so much? Christ and the early church were offering an alternative to that rigid structure, to that system of certainty that said who was in and who was out, and it was very clear. They offered a community where goods and needs were shared together so that those in need could be healed, fed, and offered a place. They offered a community that helped those who were oppressed or unfairly treated by organizing together 
and confronting those who made unjust laws and treated unfairly those who lived under difficult circumstances. They rallied together for those who had been outcast by the very religious systems that they benefited from. Instead of a temple-centered community, the early church offered a Christ-centered community. A Christ-centered community that took situations and personal lives into account. Where the rigid law said no feeding on the Sabbath, a Christ-centered approach said, if you are hungry, we will feed you. Where a rigid law said only this certain class of people may have access to God. A Christ-centered community says all people are priests, no matter birth, nor gender, nor economic level, nor education. Where the rigid law says our temple is only for those who have prepared themselves properly, a Christ-centered community says the table is open and all are invited to partake in communion with God and with all God's people. That is the community that we are called to partake in. That is the hope that we find on this earth and in this church, not this room, but in the church of God. We find it in a table that convicts us so that we may continue to form a community here that looks like what the early church was trying to achieve. And that's the question. What does a Christ-centered community look like for us? It looks like housing disaster workers. If you are wondering why Kara's class in a couple weeks is in the gym at 9.45 on a Sunday morning, it's because every room we have in this church is being used for something wonderful. It looks like the sacrifice of the time and energy that each Sunday school and Wednesday night leader offers to make sure our children, youth, and adults are welcome in this church in new ways so that they can find new and better connections. It looks like our wonderful committee and lay leaders who are supporting ministries here in Hopkins County and beyond and letting us know, hey, there's good work being done that we can support. So how else can we be Christ-centered? Like Stephen, we have to be open to the new call of God and the new leading of the Spirit. As a welcoming body, we must allow ourselves to be open to where God is leading our community through new people coming in and worshiping with us and the new inspiration coming to people who've been here for a long time. Stephen was led by an angel into Gaza and encountered a person who would never have been given full fellowship before. So my question is, what happens when he went back to Jerusalem and told the other leaders? Were they angry? Were they concerned? Were they excited? Aren't all of those the responses that we encounter, that we face when we encounter something God is doing in our world? Maybe you feel them all at once. But Stephen's story and the author of Colossians remind us that stepping into those fears is following. We cannot find that diversity and inspiration solely within ourselves. It is when we come together with others and form that Christ-centered community that new doors and new opportunities for service become available to us. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Verse 14, you could argue, is the entirety of the New Testament in 20 words. Christ rules our hearts. Because Christ is the center of our community, we are called not to let division or disagreement or selfish desire get in the way of being one body called together and to be thankful for that new body. We aren't all the way there. We may not fully have that peace in our hearts, 
We obviously haven't accomplished tearing down all the walls of division and disagreement, but I think we're making progress. Each time we gather at an open table, we make progress. Each time we speak up for those who are being ignored or taken advantage of, we make progress. Each time our congregation gets more diverse and has a new set of eyes and welcomes new people, we make progress. It's been 2,000 plus years since this story happened, and we haven't accomplished it yet with all the great men and women who have gone before us. So let's not put pressure on ourselves to usher in a new age of unity and agreement. Let's do the good work now of not being hindered by lines of division. Let us work step by step in hand with others towards the ideal that the author of Colossians has put forward for us. Let us follow the lead of Stephen, who stepped out in faith and found himself going against every rule and law that he had been taught growing up because God called him to do that. Let us follow Christ as we find new ways to show our loving and open God to the world that we live in right now. Amen.